Welcome to this special WLIW-FM program inside the Hamptons International Film Festival 2020, where I talk to filmmakers from Long Island and across the country about their award-winning work and film debuts in the East End's star-studded festival running through Wednesday, October 14th. We kick off our program with a discussion about one of our own, Long Island's Harry Chapin with director Rick Korn, talking about his documentary feature, Harry Chapin, When in Doubt, Do Something. Rick, it is a real pleasure to talk to you. It is a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, my goodness. I got to tell you, I I watched, I was, you were gracious enough, the folks at the festival were gracious enough to let me screen this documentary, and... Um, it is just, boy, it is exactly what I needed was to see someone with uh, compassion and empathy and true humility. That is what I got from this documentary of, from, from Harry Chapin, and I certainly needed a dose of human nature that uh, I can believe in. So thank you. I appreciate you making this film more than you know. Thank Harry. <laughs> Harry, um, we felt as a team, as a production team, and the Chapin family, which is very much part of our production team, uh, real hands-on, incredible, incredible family. And they are really what has made this film. And Harry is what, what has made the film. And we all felt that we can use a little bit of Harry about now. Oh, my uh, goodness. You know, this is why we wanted to get out the film before the election. This is 93 minutes of just sit back and be entertained and in the end be thoroughly inspired to do something. Absolutely. My, uh, my faith in uh, human nature has been restored from your documentary, Harry Chapin, When in Doubt, Do Something. Let's start at uh, the beginning, and, I, and I'm going to consider the beginning, Rick, is when you saw Harry perform at your high school back in the mid-70s and had the chance to meet him? Yes, we did. The interesting thing about Harry was I went to high school on Long Island right. uh, in, in Plainview. Mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned Long Island at Plainview Kennedy High School. And one day in 1974, I was a junior in high school, Harry put on what was probably the best lecture slash performance that I have ever seen and probably have ever seen since then. Uh, he was, he came in in the middle of the day, it was like lunch hour, came into our auditorium, the entire school was there. The, everyone from the principal to the janitors to the coaches, everyone, it was packed. And Harry came jogging in, uh, just like you see on the film, he often does, <laughs> right. and jogged out. Uh, but um, what was remarkable is that he talked and, and sang uh, for two hours, and uh, he talked a lot about hunger and poverty and what he wanted to do. Uh, and subsequently, the following year in 1975, he, he and Bill Ayers, another Long Islander, Father Bill Ayers at the time, mm -hmm. uh, started Why Hunger? And... To this day, and this is probably the main reason why we made this film, to this day, Harry's organizations, which includes Long Island Cares and the Harry Chapin Foundation and Why Hunger, uh, ha are still, 45 years later, still helping people, particularly in this time of the pandemic. They are on the front lines and doing incredible work. So, you know, when you think about a music artist, and in particular, you think about a music artist activist. Mm -hmm. Harry was unique in that he got his hands dirty. You know, he you know went in there and he figured out, you know, what are the root causes to hunger and poverty. And he started creating things in 75 with Bill and Sandy that to this day, people on Long Island are benefiting from. Right. So I just find that to be incredible and I'm, one of the reasons why we wanted the story to be told. I, yeah, absolutely. It's a legacy that will continue and his influence uh, is just going to grow, I think, in with time as it has already. Now, Rick, it's just such a tremendous documentary that you've done here that I didn't, you know, I, I knew of Harry, some of Harry's songs, the more popular songs, but I did not realize that there was a bidding war by the major record companies for Harry Chapin. And when he signed his deal, it was the biggest record deal at the time. That's correct. 
That's astonishing. It is. Uh, we were blown away by that. And you hear it right from the horse's mouth from, from Jack Holtzman, who got into a bidding war with Clive Davis. <laughs> and Harry told Jack that he was going with Clive. And Jack flew out to Huntington, Long Island, knocked on Harry's door early in the morning and said, I'm not leaving here until you sign a deal with me. Right, and it was the and you think about who Jack had the Doors, uh, you know, all these incredible, all these incredible, incredible, you know, groups that were out. And you're talking about you know the late '60s and the '70s and all these superstars. And it was Harry who signed the biggest record deal ever. The biggest record deal at the time. Which at is, that point. Yes, exactly. And not at to the time. Right, yeah. And then also, yeah, I mean, there's so many things about Harry Chapin that you discover in this wonderful documentary, Harry Chapin, When in Doubt, Do Something. And by the way, uh, because of the documentary, the, the phrase, when in doubt, do something, was uh, that was Harry's mantra, right? When in doubt, do something. Yes, it was. Um, we uh, opened the film with it, and, and it said quite often, I mean, Harry had so many great great lines but for for us i think when in doubt do something really epitomizes who he was as a person and and it's a kind of a charge for all of us you know when when in doubt do something and it was an easy choice a lot of people said well you know uh why not name it harry keep the change or the harry chapin movie or (laughs) you and no (laughs) you know that's this is not that kind of documentary, you know. Yeah, it's um, you know this is a documentary that has a message, and it's an important message, and it's a inspirational message, and in a, in a very entertaining. Absolutely, you know, and I and I pride myself, you know, I'm a um, I'm a music DJ. I have been for a very long time here on Long Island, and boy, I'll tell you that uh, I am now going to dig in to every one of Harry's songs, his entire catalog, because it not only did I forget how great the hits were, like Cats in the Cradle and Taxi and W O L D and yeah. and so many others, but all his other songs as well. He was a truly truly gifted uh, songwriter, and also the fact of uh, him bringing in a cello at the time into his band was yep. r- was really extraordinary. It was revolutionary, and it, it makes his songs just so much more important. Well, he stood out uh, it, back in that day. You think about Cat Stevens and Gordon Lightfoot and, and uh, uh, James Taylor, and, uh, and, you know, that's what appealed to Jack Holtzman from Electra, he had the guts to, to put a cello in his in his right. rock and roll band, you know? And so it was unique at the time. Uh, but talking about music, one of, you know, there's a lot of music that we uncovered in the film that even the family didn't know about. Um, and there's one song that I would say, there's a number of songs that are my favorite, but there's one st- song that stands out. It was never recorded. It was done for the Gabe Pressman show. And oh. I believe in 1980, it was definitely after the election when Carter lost to Reagan in 1980. Right. And Harry, Harry was doubling down and Gay Pressman asked him to do a, uh, you know, Gabe was doing a show on all these factories closing all over, all over the country. Right. And Harry asked Harry to write music and he wrote a song called Cry for My Country, hmm. uh, which we have a lousy clip clip of because there's no existence of it other than this one lousy clip but we tried to fix it up as much as possible but the song is great and and it would be relevant today and that was you know one song that no no fan most fans have not heard so his like you said his his songs are extraordinary and then as you alluded to a little bit earlier he goes on uh, a radio program with then priest Bill Ayers, right? That's how they met. He was invited on on yep. on the show. They hit it off like yeah. like brothers. I mean, they just the chemistry between the two of them. Harry invites him over to dinner at the house in Huntington, and these guys say, "Let's do something about hunger." That's right, and well, it was really Sandy nudging them. Sandy's philosophy was and. All of their philosophy was, if you're going to get behind something, get behind something that you're going to do for the rest of your life. And they selected Hunger and Poverty, and Harry explains why in the movie, because 
hunger and poverty ex- it affects everyone. Uh, and, uh, and, and so that was what they were going to focus on. And they they started um, they they started there to say there is no reason for hunger. I don't. There's no reason for this. I'm going to do something about it. I mean, talk about a can-do attitude. It's extraordinary. It, it, yes, and and um, and like I said before, he got his hands dirty um, and really figured out what the root issues were uh, when they formed the presidential commission and Carter put him on on the commission. Uh, and he would be doing a concert out in California and fly to Washington and make the meeting. He never missed one meeting, not one. There was no one like him. Uh, it, it, and I think that probably the, the most incredible thing that I hope comes through in the film right. that I discovered in, 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 in research and speaking to these music artists is if you think about what he inspired, forget about for a second what he has done, you know, with Why Hunger and all that, but he inspired Ken Cragen and Harry Belafonte to create USA for Africa, which was We Are the World. Mm-hmm. He and became Hands Across America and Live Aid, you know, the, the influence he had on Sir Bob Geldof, you know? Yeah. So... You know, musically, musically, towards the end of his career, the music industry was like, listen, you know, either you're going to be a musician, singer, songwriter, or you're going to be an activist and so forth. And, you know, he chose to help people. You know, so the question, one of the last questions that I, the last question that I asked everyone that I interviewed in this film is, what do you think Harry would be doing today? Now, most of... My interviews happened in 2018 and what was going on in the border and, and all that. And mm-hmm. everyone had their own opinion. He would be, you know, some in some of his family said, well, you know, he he would probably be in politics in some way. Some said, you know, he'd be, you know, uh, you know, he'd still be making music and be an activist and um, and maybe have his own talk show because he was leading that way. And, you know, th- there were so many directions that he could have gone and. His brother Tom, when I asked that question, said, I don't know, but whatever it is, he'd be in the middle of it. <laughs> and so yeah, that yeah. really sums up. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, we, we've, turned, we've turned that question on ourselves. My, my partner, S.A. Barron, who's also from Long Island, from Lawrence, uh, and Harry came to his high school. Um, okay. We turned that, that, we turned that question on ourselves. We've created work. We can't give you the details of it. We'll drop a couple of names, but we thought, what would Harry do, you know, today? And what we created is a, something called do something and vote. Oh. And it's a way for people to throw out all the politics. Right. And show what the issues are in you know, racial, uh, racial in, injustice and hunger and poverty and climate change and uh, women's rights. And, you know, we, we can go on. And it's about sure. activism. He was only 38 years old. We lost him on a, uh, a tragic car accident, uh, July 16th, I believe, 1981 on the LIE. It was it, actually his son, Jason, who you work with on the film, uh, was almost going to be with Harry that day, right? He was going to he was going to join Harry. He had to he had a meeting uh, in the city and then a, a free concert at Eisenhower Park later that day, right? Yeah, it was actually Josh, um, Josh. The, Harry's youngest son. Yeah, he was going. He, most people think he was driving to do the show. The show was later that evening. Uh, a benefit he was doing out in Eisenhower Park, right? Uh, and but he was going, he was going into the city uh, basically because his agent was going to read him the riot act about not doing as many benefit shows, you know, uh, <laughs> he was, anymore. he was giving away the farm. He was broke, right? Because he was so generous. Yeah. Well, he, he was making $2 million a year and gave away every diamond. Yeah. So they had to, they had to, they had to sit him down. Yeah. It was almost, it was almost like an intervention they were going to have on him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what that meeting was. Right. Well, Rick, I, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to talk with you uh, this afternoon. Uh, and seeing the film is, is I know this sounds a little dramatic. It's a life changer, especially where we find ourselves right now at this very moment in this country. Rick, I can't thank you enough uh, for making this documentary and taking this time this afternoon. 
Thank you so much. Thank oh. you for having us. Uh, I hope people have the opportunity to watch it at the Hamptons Film Festival. It, it'll be a you'll enjoy 93 minutes of, of just enjoyment and get away from the world a little bit. Absolutely, and you'll come back a better person for it. Rick Korn, writer, director, co-producer, Harry Chapin, When in Doubt, Do Something Makes Its World Premiere. Please go to HamptonsFilmFest.org, and WLIWFM is a proud media sponsor of the Hamptons International Film Festival. Up next, another Long Islander, Tara Mila, talks about her feature film, Wander Darkly, based on a personal experience. Now, Tara has been out in California for a while, but Tara, uh, you grew up in Mm -hmm. Lindenhurst. You're a Long Islander at heart. Well, you are a Long Islander. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I grew up, uh, you know, south of Wellwood, and uh, my my mom is from Lindenhurst originally. My dad's from Massapequa, and we, you know, we just have a big old Irish-Italian crazy Catholic family out there that... uh, I, I still call it home, you know. It's like I've lived in California for a long time, and I still say I'm going to go home when I go back to New York. Well, that's great. We were talking a little bit before we got on the air. I'm originally from Massapequa, as I told Tara, and I lived in Lindenhurst for, for quite a while. So we have we have that in common. Now, Tara, I had the pleasure to uh, get an early screening of uh, this film uh, last night, and i got to tell you, it's, I just thought it was exceptional. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That means a lot. It's a, it's a tremendous movie. It's a powerful movie. Uh, it's an emotional movie. But I would, for what it's worth, I would highly, highly recommend it. It's just great. And again, it's called Wander Darkly. So uh, why don't we start with you wrote and directed this film. What was the inspiration for the storyline? Yeah, well, you know, the movie is about a couple who, um, uh, after a traumatic accident, sort of finds themselves in this purgatory and they have to go back and relive and renegotiate their past in order to face their uncertain future. Um, And it was inspired by um, about seven years ago, my husband and I survived a pretty bad car crash. And we had two little kids at the time who were six months and four. There was something I think about being a parent that really changed my sense of the, of, of mortality, of the importance of my life. And um, it was a it was a really intense uh, experience for us. And coming out of that, I think we were at Thanksgiving that year, about four weeks after the crash. My parents were fighting and screaming about the turkey, and the kids were crying. And um, I just found myself so overwhelmed with gratitude for the fact that we were still there, living these messy, delicate little lives of ours. Um, and I just really wanted to bottle that up, that feeling, and and share it with as many people as possible. Um, and that was the beginning of, of Wonder Darkly. And now you and your husband have recovered completely from the accident. First off, I'm very sorry to hear that you had to go through that, but I'm, yeah. have you rec- have you both recovered completely physically? Yeah, yeah, thank goodness. I mean, you know, airbags and ambulances, and I, I was quite concussed after. I kind of blacked out immediately and then came to and couldn't see. And um, Oh, my gosh. Uh, but my husband, he broke his wrist. Um, and then, you know, thank goodness we're, we're fine, actually. I mean, we're, we're really absolutely fine. And it definitely changes your perspective on things to sort of have those brushes, you know, and you, you thank goodness that you have that perspective without having to have lost somebody or, you know, have, have the real deal happen. So, yeah, we're really lucky. Right. So I would like you to, if you could, because the, uh, the acting is just tremendous. If you want to just uh, let, it, let us know uh, some of the folks who are in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the couple is played by Sienna Miller and uh, Diego Luna, both of whom are fantastic. Um, oh, my gosh. Sienna, you might know from Factory Girl or uh, Amer- American Woman last year. She was in the Roger Ailes uh, show this past year. Um, and then Diego is uh, our narcos, and uh, he's done a Star Wars film. I mean, he's, you know, Ichimama Tambien. The two of them um, were the most wonderful collaborators. They're so, both of them, so deeply talented and intelligent, um, and were incredibly trusting working on a movie that was sort of bizarre, where they, they talk about their memories while they're in them, and um, you know, we were constantly sort of negotiating. How lucid are we in this moment? What do we know? Where are we? When are we? Uh, they were really um, wonderful play partners in this, I have to say. I felt very lucky to have them. Uh, extra- extraordinary performances. And, you know, the, the, the material yeah. that you provided with them and your direction, I think, is just exceptional. The way you did that, way, the, the way you... you 
the, the way you brought them back and they relive their memories in the way you shot it and the way you set it. I've never seen anything like it in a film before. And it, 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 was, extremely, it was extremely moving and very innovative. So uh, I just want to remind... Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's exceptional. Um, uh, Tara Mealy, who is the writer and director of Wander Darkly, uh, it's, it's the East Coast premiere uh, for this film, and you can go to Hamptons Film Fest... Uh, .org, and you can watch it virtually. And the idea, the, the idea of the film is it touches on, on first, you know, a traumatic thing that happens, right? A, 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 an accident mm -hmm. where mortality and, you know, life in general is in question. And then you reevaluate your relationship, which is, you know, I mean, what a great idea for a film. And I, some of these feelings, you know, are, are things that, I find that I don't always want to address some of these emotions you tap mm -hmm. into that you tap into in this movie. Now, I want to say that if you don't, I find um, if you don't address these things, you really won't grow as a person. Yeah, I think I was really interested in how you know we get stuck in our own stories and our own narratives of our version of things. Yeah, um, and how important it is to take a step outside of your perspective and to think about. Uh, how somebody else might be perceiving uh, events. Uh, and also, you know, I think especially now, the movie maybe even has more relevance in the middle of the pandemic where we're all sort of, you know, quarantined with our nuclear families and, and forced to renegotiate, like, the importance, uh, you know, what our priorities are and what's really important to us. And so, yeah, I think I think um, taking stock and, and reconsidering that maybe your version of things might not be right <laughs> This is really important really. and hard. Really hard. Yes, it, it is hard. But yeah, and I love the, the, the dynamic of going back as they uh, as the couple reassess the, both their relationship with because of this life threatening accident that they got into. And I want to be careful here not to tilt my, not to tilt my hand too much here on the storyline. Mm -hmm. But it is just amazing how you can feel the back and forth of the relationship where you feel like. You know, it's easier just to say, forget it, I, I'm done. But then there's the love, yeah. then, then there's the love of these people for each other that brings you back in and say, you know, so it goes back and forth. Ah, I think they're going to call it a day. No, there's, some, there's something, mm -hmm. there's a chemistry between these, these actors and your story that is just, it's really mm -hmm. magnetic. Did you feel it come together as you directing it? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I love I love to live on the edge of oh god, <laughs> if this gonna work. Um, yeah. But but certainly, I felt like the love story and the the arc of those two characters and their their sort of dynamic, like you're talking about that magnetism between them. Yes. That was working in real time on set. Um, and I think I was really interested in in finding a way to tell a love story that I hadn't seen before about more mature relationship, you know, not the fresh, new, brand new love, but what happens after many years together. And, and, you know, when my husband and I fight, we're never really fighting about the thing we're fighting about, <laughs> or at least I'm not right. Like we have a fight about the dishwasher and my brain opens up a million boxes of, you know, I'm like, well, what about that time in 2004? And he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. So I, you know, I'm very rarely in the present. I'm often projecting into the past or into the future. And I really wanted to try to find a a way to communicate that feeling in a relationship of, of all that baggage and how it can kind of weigh down and, and, and just, you know, what actually binds us together at the end of the day? Like, what is that thing that holds us together? Well, I, I got to tell you that I, what I got from it and, it, and it's not easy stuff, is that, you know, you have to speak up. You ha it, it's not always easy. You have to have you have to have discussions or confrontations that you don't want to have. You can't dance around stuff. There's a great line um, in The Departed. Um, Matt Damon says, I'm Irish. Mm -hmm. I can I can deal with something being wrong my whole life. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I come from an Irish. I come from an right. We can dance around the pink elephant in the room you know, our whole lives. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is the, the story of this uh, this film, and we're talking to uh, director-writer Tara Mealy about her uh, her film, Wander Darkly. If you want to live, because you go through a, a life-threatening thing and you realize that time is short, there's no mm -hmm. time for assuming or hoping somebody can read your mind in a relationship. You gotta, yeah. you, you gotta be upfront because you're just gonna waste time. So it is, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm so glad that um, you know your film is getting its East Coast debut on your home.
home turf of Long Island. Yeah, yeah, me too, man. I wish I could be there with everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another time. Well, I, ju I just love the film, and it's a real pleasure to talk to you, Tara. You too, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Tara Mealy, who is the writer and director of an extraordinary film that I had the pleasure to watch last night, Wander Darkly. You can go to hamptonsfilmfest.org and you can get a virtual screening. You have 48 hours to watch this uh, film, but you're going to be glued to it. Once you start, you're, you're not going to need 48 hours. You're just going to need the running time of the film. So hamptonsfilmfest.org. If there ever was a film for the times, it is with drawn arms. Focusing on the story of Tommy Smith and his gesture of protest on the podium of the 1968 Olympic Games, I spoke with the film's director about this powerful film. It's directed by both uh, Glenn Kaino and Afshin Shahidi. Your work is just tremendous. I had the pleasure, I told you just before we went on, to see this documentary. This um, is about a very powerful moment that happened in uh, 1968. And as a matter of fact, as uh, both you know, uh, we're coming up on exactly the 52nd anniversary, right? It will be the 17th of this month that uh, this event happened? Yep, that's correct. Yeah. And um, this is at the uh, Mexico City Olympics. And when uh, Tommy Smith won the gold medal in the 200 meter, along with John Carlos, another uh, American who won the bronze in the 200 meter, went up, uh, stepped on the podium uh, to accept their medals, uh, and the national anthem played, they raised their fists. And uh, at the time, uh, this was uh, considered, and maybe still now it would be, uh, though I like to think maybe it wouldn't, um, very controversial at that point. So this is pretty much Tommy's story, right, Glenn and Afshin? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, a, it's a new telling of, of Tommy's story, let's say. Right. And um, so 1968, to begin with, um, as you both are well aware of, was a very, very tumultuous year, uh, losing uh, both Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Uh, the Democratic Convention uh, in Chicago turned violent. This was uh, quite an act of courage by uh, Tommy Smith. And this was the first time that the Olympics were actually televised as they were happening. Yeah, it was the, it was the first moment and the first opportunity for live protest of that, of that nature to, to ever happen. So now, how premeditated was this? It seemed that it wasn't, it, it seemed like Tommy was, Tommy and, um, and John Carlos, they were, they were going to do something, but how this came about fairly quickly, or did they know what they were going to do? Uh, I mean, first they had to win the event, right? Yeah, I think that I, I would say, I think it's safe to characterize that they, they, a lot of the athletes had banded together prior to the Olympics and all had a commitment to each other um, that they would effectively represent how they felt the country represented them, you know, uh, in, in any given opportunity that they might have uh, through their success. Um, to, to, to create a, a moment of demonstration. Uh, you know, to that extent, Tommy and, and John and the entire team came in, you know, knowing that they had to do something. Um, you know, Tommy had, had clearly, you know, in advance um, had his wife send him, you know, the pair of gloves, bring him the pair of gloves. And so he was, he was armed, let's say, with the apparatus to do what he did. Uh, but as, as you see in the film, it was, it was not until, you know, the, the, that he won that all the component parts of it came together, you know, for his for his second performance of the day, not only on the track but then on the podium. Right now, now what happened was they asked him to leave. Right, shortly after that happened, the the Olympic Committee, um, the U.S. Olympic Committee, asked them to come, and they actually tried to take their medals, uh, which they didn't uh, give up, but they did kick them out of the uh, the Olympic Village and out of the country. So from that moment on. Tommy's life was affected. Um, some appreciated his courage. Many did not. And uh, many different areas of Tommy's life were affected. Trying to get a job, uh, his personal relationships uh, got affected. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that when, when, he, when he returned, you know, he, he was not received with the hero's welcome that one might think one would get in this day and age. Though, as we're seeing right now, 
standing up for equality and civil rights is still met with some controversy, despite there now being a system in place to support people. Back in the day, you know, Adam Silver, you wouldn't see any of the support that you see for protesters and and for athletes standing up for for civil rights um, that you do now. And so when Tommy came back, uh, you know, for the most part, besides some uh, few supporters, you know, he and his teammates, but primarily, you know, in our story, he, you know, was left with very little to work from and had to to build up uh, a, a new life. You know, and I think the critical thing to, to consider is that as, as as the man who authored that image, he tried to both live up to what he thought that image meant to the world, but also have a dual life, really, where he was trying to be a family man and trying to live a normal life. And, you know, he found that, you know, it was unsustainable for him to try to live up to his own image, but then also create a life that he actually dreamed about, which is being a family man. Yeah. Uh, consider the fact that he was an amateur athlete and without having protested, he would have probably gone from that moment of winning the gold to accolades and, and contracts and, you know, probably not to the level that athletes get today, but uh, he would have benefited greatly from it. And, and he was willing to put all of that on the line. He didn't have a bank account, uh, uh, you know, with a large balance to, to fall back on if, if things didn't go well. He was really putting it out on the line and not knowing what was going to be on the other end. Yeah, and that's an excellent point because, yeah, even though it's not the endorsements and so forth aren't like they are today in sport, he did put it all on the line because I'm sure he could have reaped the benefits if uh, he didn't take that action and being a gold medal winner uh, at the 68 Olympics. Tommy Smith said so many powerful things in this documentary, Glenn and uh, Afshin, and what broke my heart is when he when he talked about his mom and his mom, in, through the mail, people sent some disgusting things in the mail because of what he did. And he said he felt responsible for her death, the stress that probably led to what he believed was her heart attack and her death. And to f- carry that weight around, uh, it just – it was very, very powerful, and my heart goes out to him. Talk about, I guess, that part of his life when he hit that emotional bottom. That that must have been very tough to walk through with Tommy. Yeah, I think you know the, um, what we have in the film are, are really the first time that he's spoken about those events. Um, you know, in 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 many many years, um, and certainly the first time they've been spoken outside the walls of his household. Um, and, and, uh, you know, uh, it was extremely powerful, I think for both us as well as him to begin to think about that sacrifice and his sacrifice, you know, in, in context of the world now. And, you know, with his genuine intention being with this project that we not only connect his sacrifice, uh, to the sacrifices of the athletes today, but to remind everybody, you know, that the stuff that we're seeing you know, comes at personal cost, and and uh, you know everyone sees uh, you know people who are our heroes um, standing up for things, and, and 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 you know there are repressive events that maybe we don't know about things that that these people are giving to to our world. Yeah, and, and I think what's also unique um, about the film is that uh, we didn't come in as filmmakers and say to Tom, hey, we want to make a film about you. It all started through a very organic collaboration between between Glenn and Tommy on art and so there was a friendship and so when the idea of the film came it wasn't you know we want you to be the subject or like we would like to make a film with you um and i think that that lent to his openness and 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 him sharing so many things that nobody really knew or had heard before from him uh in the multitude of other you know interviews and and other documentaries and whatnot that had been that had been made yeah, it, se- it seems that, uh, Glenn, uh, that you and uh, Tommy Smith uh, connected. You guys really have a very strong, strong bond, and that was really nice to see. And the, the artwork that you have made along with Tommy uh, is just tremendous. So congratulations on that as well. Yeah, thank you very much. It was uh, uh, one of the, the, the great rewards of my career to work with him and um, you know be able to, to, to you know, come up with that work and and, and now have it be seen. One of the, I mean, there's many things that he said, but, you know, he, he, he also alluded to the fact, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, that people put words in his mouth when they interpreted his action on that podium. They were assuming 
they knew what he was standing for, what he was trying to say, which which really hit me very hard because they don't know what he was what he was saying. He was and he was trying to articulate in the film and he did do it in your, in your documentary with uh, drawn arms that this was more it was sure it was about. Um, rights for African Americans and prejudice and racism, but it was about social justice and humanitarianism. This was bigger than what a lot of people were trying to pigeonhole it. Is that correct? Yeah, and that's really the true motivation when Afshin and I started working on this together. You know, that moment of us realizing that what we thought we knew or what we thought the world knew was not actually the whole story. We felt that in this moment, we live in times where people are afraid to collaborate on other stories, tell other stories. People feel different cultural factors that, you know, their own personal stories are the only things that sometimes they have. And, and for Tommy to put it out there, not only to have sacrificed his entire life to create what we thought was the biggest symbol of social justice, for them to now open it up and include everyone into his story intersectionally to include people of all races, uh, genders, types, and, and, you know, w- was fantastic for us to know when we wanted to really put that out there and share that with the world. And that, that really was one of the motivating factors for us to, to make the film. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it must be, I mean, not to mention everything that uh, Tommy went through as a result of that, but to have it misunderstood by so many people, the frustration added on to all the other things that he had to deal with was just, it was very powerful. And, and I thank you guys for getting that message across among many other things that you have done in, in this film, again, with drawn arms. And as you alluded to, this, this goes right up to today with uh, Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. It's, it's taking a knee is more than just about prejudice against African-Americans. And also, you know, Megan, uh, the, the, the soccer player, uh, Rapinoe, and her political stances on things. These are bigger things than some folks are either willing to admit or they're in denial about, which is unfortunate. But it's, it's really revolutionary what, uh, what Tommy did back in uh, 1968. And what you guys have done in this documentary by carrying that message and reminding us how important it is that uh, we all be treated equally uh, is very, very important. Uh, Glenn, the artwork that you did, um, we alluded to a little bit uh, earlier. Uh, you took a mold, a cast of Tommy's arm. Uh, you turned it into, and I, and I don't want to you know, give away the film too much here because it's a very powerful scene when they see what you did uh, after you made it a, a mold of his arm. Also, there's a tremendous statue of Tommy, his back, and the front is, uh, is just a mirror, which is uh, very symbolic of uh, how we need to look at ourselves and how uh, we approach people just because they might look or uh, seem uh, different. So, that's just some of the stuff, uh, the artwork that you did. And uh, again, you, you mentioned it earlier, Glenn. It's, it's been very satisfying to work with Tommy and to uh, collaborate on this, uh, this stuff, right? Yeah, it's really, it's been an honor. And I think a lot of times, I talked about this with my other artist colleagues too. A lot of times artists have an opportunity or have an idea to work with subject matter that is historic. Um, and, and in our case, to work with subject matter that is both historic, but also living, in which case we can collaborate. And you know, really work. And so we, we call that a collaboration because a lot of that work, you know, is really from extensive conversations that we've had um, and inspired by them, you know, and, and we've really created an ecosystem of support around Tommy for that, being supported by all that artwork. So, yeah, it's been, it's been an honor. And I think Afshin and I have taken it very seriously that we are the stewards in a way of some of the storytelling. And so we tried to really work hard to to be as just as we could and, and really not only just connecting it now, but respecting the access and the trust that Tommy has given to us. Well, you've, you've done an excellent job of it. And I, I'm certainly grateful for what you did. And I, the admiration uh, because of your film I have now for Tommy Smith, I knew a little bit about the story, is immense. And I just want to remind folks, I'm going to let you guys go in just a second. I'm talking with uh, Glenn uh, Kaino and also Afshin Shahidi. Uh, they are the directors of the documentary with drawn arms. You can watch it virtually simply by going to hamptonsfilmfest.org. Now, not only do you get the opening night spot, you also are being awarded the festival's uh, Film of uh, Conflict and Resolution Award. So congratulations on that. Um, that must make you guys feel pretty good as well. Yeah, yeah totally, totally unex- unexpected. And I think they told us that we are the, the first American-made film that's, uh, that's received that award. Uh, typically, it's gone to foreign films. 
Wow. Also in the film is a civil rights activist and the late Congressman John Lewis. You had to, a chance to uh, speak with him about Tommy and, uh, and the work that, that he did. It was, it was great to see him in this film as well. Yeah, meeting John was, was also one of the highlights. Congressman so generous with us mm-hmm. and, and really broke it down. You know, I think there's evidence in the film, too, his voice and compassion in the face of all the aggression that he uh, withstood uh, is an inspiration to, to all of us in the film. I think that, that comes out as well. So we were so grateful to be able to, to work with him. I bet. I bet. Well, once again, I, I can't thank you guys enough for making this uh, documentary. And I, I urge I urge uh, everybody out there, uh, it's, it's especially because of the situation we're in with Drawn Arms, the documentary. Again, HamptonsFilmFest.org. Glenn and Afshin, thank you so much, not only for your time, but for making this documentary. Thanks for having thank us you. on. Finally, it's a dog's life in the documentary feature Stray which follows life on the streets of Istanbul, Turkey, through the eyes of three homeless dogs. Here's my interview with director Elizabeth Lowe, who tells us about this film's unique point of view. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. It's Thanks a pl- so much for having me. Oh, you bet. Thank you so much for making this film. Stray, I saw it the other night, and I just loved it. If you could basically explain the basic idea of what goes on in the film, what is this about? Sure. So the film follows um, one dog, called Zayton, basically, as she travels through Istanbul. And she's a stray dog. She doesn't have owners, so her schedule is completely up to her. And she kind of eavesdrops on different conversations throughout the city. She's able to cross sort of ethnic, gender, and class lines in the way that only stray dogs seem to be able to do in in that city. And and through the eavesdropping that she uh, has and then also sort of the relationship that she builds with people who share the streets with her. And in the film, she forges a relationship, on and off again relationship, with a group of young men from Syria who are refugees. Um, you really get a sense of like what Turkey as a society is going through at that time that the film was taking place, but all through sort of like the vantage point of this stray dog who's living on the margins of society. Now, how, how, did, how did this subject matter, and what was the inspiration for you to decide to make this documentary uh, stray? Um, it came from a really, really personal place. Obviously, I, I love dogs, and I had a childhood dog growing up. And I remember when he died, I felt, and, and probably a lot of people feel this way, this, this need to kind of suppress the grief that you feel of a loved one dying because they're not human. Um, And so I think that experience kind of made me really question, like, how does the status of a being change depending on what cultural context you're in? And so I really wanted to to make a film about the status of stray dogs who often are sort of like the most disposable being in a society. Like they serve no economic purpose. They, you know, they're not pets. They're not property. They don't participate in work. And and what what is the life of someone like that? And and to assert their value by putting them on screen, um, and to and to see and to examine society around them through that marginalized viewpoint. Because I feel like a marginalized viewpoint show can can tell you so much more about a society than 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 speaking from the center. And and that's kind of what what drew me to Turkey because they have such a unique relationship with stray dogs where people actually fought for their right to exist, to be able to roam freely instead of to be you know, put in a pound or euthanized as they are in our country. Um, and, and so to me, seeing the stray dogs wandering freely there, every single one of those stray dogs felt like a miracle to me. Mm-hmm. Like they were walking testaments to sort of human mercy and also scorn as they, as they, travel through the city. So from what I understand from the film is that back in the early uh, 20th century, the early 1900s, it was evidently the, the, the city of Istanbul uh, thought it, they considered it a problem and decided to euthanize the dogs. But then what happened was, like you said, the uh, the citizens of Istanbul put an end to that eventually. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting is that at the, at the in the 1900s, as the Ottoman Empire was crumbling, it was actually the British who there was a British diplomat who traveled to Istanbul, and a pack of dogs chased that diplomat, and he fell to his death. And the British government 
forced the Turkish one to round up all their stray dogs and banish them to this island where all the dogs starve to death. It's almost very similar to Wes Anderson's, the plot of Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs, but yes. in real life. And, and, and yeah, so after that, people wow. fought. You know, the government constantly tried to eradicate dogs because they were trying to westernize the city and modernize it, which in our conception of a clean city, it's you don't have stray animals on the street. But I think this, this, the culture of, of Turkey, you know, they, they stand by their stray animals. And so people fought for it despite the government's attempts to westernize and, you know, the British influence. Yeah, 100 years ago. Yeah. I just want to remind folks, or if you're just joining us, I've had the pleasure to be talking to Elizabeth Lowe, who is director, co-producer, and writer of the documentary Stray, which is part of the Hamptons International Film Festival going on now through the 14th. You can go to hamptonsfilmfest.org and watch it uh, virtually. I had the pleasure to see it, and I just I just loved it. Now, how did you find um, your lead, <laughs> your lead actor? Let's, let's It's a documentary, obviously. He's not an actor. He's being himself, and boy, I, I just fell in love with Zayton. What a what a tremendous disposition Zayton has. It was like watching Zayton uh, walk around the city and uh, and interact with those uh, the young boys with uh, from Syria with the drug problem and the and the older gentlemen. It was like it was his living room. He would lie down in the middle of busy traffic. He would l- walk along, you know, the nightlife. And people would pet him. And he was just, he wasn't indifferent. He was just very much at one with this city. So how did you find Zayton? I know Zayton is an incredible dog. Um, She's actually a a female dog. Um, Okay. uh, Zayton, one day we were in in Istanbul and we were just, you know, searching for our subjects. Who would lead us through the city? Who would emerge as our star? And (laughs) she was streaking past me. We were in an underground tunnel. And like these two dogs, Zayton and Nazar, her companion, were running in this really busy tunnel. And we were wondering, like, where are these dogs going? They seem like they have this schedule. Um, And so we chased them. And they ended up uh, sort of uh, reuniting with the Syrian boys. And that the relationship that they had was just really poignant for me because you could tell that, like, without the dogs, I think the Syrian boys would have felt very adrift in the city that was not their own. And, and maybe it was the same for the dogs, too. And that bond was really compelling for me. But also what was important to Zayton was that she was one of the very few dogs who didn't inadvertently following us back. And so she could really sort of fulfill the promise of the film, which is to see what a non-human agency feels like, what what it feels like to be enveloped in the will of something or someone that's not human and not owned by any human. And that was a very important message for the film, sort of to recenter our visual and oral landscape on a non-human gaze to kind of challenge anthropocentrism in our world. Yeah. I feel like it's really destructive. It, 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 the relationship sort of like the antidote to that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the relationship between uh, the refugees, the young boys from Syria who were homeless and uh, uh, had uh, and I don't want to tilt your hand too much because it's you know, and have a drug problem. But and and their relationship with with uh, Zayton and the other dogs, it was mm-hmm. it was beyond being human. They, it was this, it was like it was just living things that need each other to validate the sense of mm-hmm. the sense of community, the sense of family that these mm-hmm. these boys were so attached mm-hmm. to them. And, yeah, exactly. And you could you could tell the dogs were uh, they felt like they were part of, you know, they were just it was so amazing to watch again to see Zayton be so at ease in all these different situations. But Zayton was uh, mm-hmm. is also a very. Um, I mean, when when Zayton was confronted by other stray dogs and had to stand up for herself, or Zayton had to you know get a meal or something, mm-hmm. Zayton was very aggressive when she needed to be. But at other times. She, like I said, would, um, as you well know, and when you see this documentary, Stray, uh, could lie in the middle of heavy traffic, could walk within a crowded nighttime uh, mm-hmm. scene in Istanbul, let little kids come up and, and pet her, and she was not threatening at all. Mm-hmm. Was, that, was she just, just such a great disposition, Zayton has, huh? She really did. She really did. And I think it partly, I think she's a fairly young dog. 
Yeah. And, and that's partly, you know, her, her playfulness and her intelligence. I think a lot of the stray dogs in Istanbul, the ones that survive, they tend to be very socially intelligent. Like she just, she knew, she understood people's boundaries. She understood how to interact with other dogs in a very territorial environment. Right. Um, she was very, yeah, she was incredible. And a lot of the dogs there are incredible. <laughs> yeah. Very much part of, you know, it just, it just, it just made perfect sense to see them intermingle that the way they did in such a busy life in, in a, in a city like that. Um, I, I congratulate you on, uh, on bringing this documentary uh, to film. It's just, I mean, it's just a, a, a tremendous story and it must've been uh, challenging to uh, follow the dogs with cameras. Yeah, it was it was very challenging to be constantly <laughs> crouched low as you're chasing them. And you can see yeah. in the film there are moments when I lose them and I'm like chasing after them and the camera is jiggling. Um, <laughs> but that was really important for us to try to like, you know, just vi- viscerally put you in the perspective at the height level of, of dogs. And, and we also actually use pet tracking collars. We put them on them at the end of every night. The callers would tell us where the dogs were uh, on our phones, so that the next morning we would be able to find them again. Got you. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for, for thanks for telling us yeah. one of your, your tricks there of, of keeping an eye on them and how you got to. <laughs> yeah, that that's. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. How would you find them if you lost them? But there you go. You put something uh, a homing yeah. device on them, which which was just great. Well, um, I want to yeah. I, I want to encourage <laughs> folks to go uh, when they go to HamptonsFilmFest.org. Uh, you can find uh, the documentary uh, Stray and uh, Elizabeth Lowe, director, co-producer and writer. Uh, congratulations on a uh, on a film well done. Thank you so much, Brian. I hope you enjoyed this special WLIWFM program inside the Hamptons International Film Festival 2020. WLIWFM is a media sponsor of the Hamptons International Film Festival, which runs through Wednesday, October 14th. You can find out more at HamptonsFilmFest.org. I'm Brian Cosgrove. Thanks for joining us for this special program on Long Island's only NPR station at 88.3 WLIW-FM and streaming on WLIW.org slash radio.